Welcome everybody to another episode of Europe's B2B SaaS podcast. My name is Patrick and I'm very happy and humbled to welcome Oliver Manojlovic today, the VP of Sales at Personio. Hi, Oliver. Hi, uh, glad to be here and thank you for the invitation. Uh, yeah, really looking forward to our chat. Me too, me too. Thanks for joining the, the, the show and even though you you have to lead hundreds of salespeople, take the time for a 30-minute uh, discussion with me. I hand over directly to you, Oliver. You prepared two tactical tips. So let's start with those right away. Okay, cool. So um, I know you talk about a variety of topics in your podcast, uh, sometimes more relevant for AE, sometimes more for leaders. And I'm going to focus today a little bit about uh, leadership topics. Um, so I've brought two things. Um, so the first element is um, execution of a strategy. What do I mean about that? So as leaders, we often tend to, how to say, contemplate quite a bit about strategy because something is not working right, something is not going as we've expected, and so on. And a very quick reaction is, are we having the right strategy? Are we, I don't know, targeting the right customers, ETC? So there's a lot of more high-level discussions that are happening in these um, considerations. However, what we mostly or frequently oversee is actually the question, have we executed the strategy that we uh, basically uh, implemented or defined properly? Because if you haven't, and that's a very critical element, if you haven't executed the strategy at the highest possible level, you don't know whether the reason for the malfunctioning is the strategy or your execution. So you might be actually on a golden strategy, but your execution sucks. And then instead of keeping the strategy, you're changing the strategy and going back to a crappy execution and you will, how to say, very quickly end up at a similar result. So that's a very, very, um, let's say, uh, important element um, that um, throughout uh, the recent years we've observed that often you jump to conclusions instead of like assessing the picture properly and then deciding, okay, where do you actually have the gap? Interesting topic. Uh, so execution strategy how do you make sure oliver that um the execution works out out how can you increase the the probability that it, the strategy is well executed mm -hmm. so first of all obviously you have to give, gain alignment uh, about the priority of execution so if you let's say have a team um, i don't know 20 people or something like that um, you probably work with two or three leaders in your team that are supporting you um, and that means you and your leadership team, first of all, need to be completely clear about that priority and who's taking which part in the execution and in the strategy and in this whole concept. So that's number one. And then the second thing is to bring the team on board and the alignment, the kind of like being conscious about that this is a very, very important element is um, the first step. Without that, it doesn't flow. To give you an example, um, when we, for example, recruit first-line leaders or when we uh, pr like considering promoting people into a first-line leadership role. Um, what I hear often is, so um, I'm going to do X, Y, that, and then I can focus on strategic projects in my leadership role. And it literally feels like that 
actually what is important in a first line leadership role is kind of like a byproduct or a side project versus all the things that should be at max side projects become the majority of the work. So people who've been in an IC role and have this kind of view, they're kind of like trying to get away from the IC role and try to, you know, work more strategic, uh, you know, <laughs> in brackets, <laughs> uh, while off they don't even know what that means. And um, if that's a situation, then you might have the wrong person, um, or you obviously can discuss it with that person and kind of like clear the priorities because the priority of a first line sales leader is to train their people and make them the best possible salespeople that they can be. That's yeah. priority number one. Everything else is kind of like pointless if you don't get that right. Yeah, I agree. But I wonder because you manage to scale so quickly and I, I think Slootman from Snowflake just read uh, wrote a book, I'm not sure if you also read it. And one yeah. thing, he says is like often it is actually execu execution that is the problem and we at we at unique and I'm, I'm wondering whether you also have a certain methodology when it comes to ex execution i give you an example what we do at unique now we have we do the daily huddles um, like the rockefeller habit so we define mm -hmm. quarterly goals for salespeople and developers and uh, finance and hr and so on and then we break those down to everybody and we make sure like uh, every day the whole team now we have 30 people that's still doable the whole team is in a meeting and everybody says what their target their goals are for that day so everybody's like hey i'm going to do 50 cold calls hey i want to get two new opportunities. Hey, I have a, a demo and I want a clear next step set in the calendar um, after that. And we do that every day. So people get together, you know, they know exactly what others are doing. It's really transparent mm -hmm. and they're accountable for what they say. Do you have anything like any like methodology in place in to make sure that execution works well? Mm -hmm. Okay. So I think it's, um, it's, it's, dependent. Um, I'm not a fan of, you know, giving blueprints out uh, or saying like, hey, this is what we did and uh, this is the right thing for you because every company is unique. Um, every person is unique. There's a certain like uh, character that uh, drives a company and it's very dangerous. And I think um, I'm actually part halfway through the book from Frank. Um, he's also stating in the beginning mm -hmm. how he how he uh, finds it insulting that to compare constantly companies with other companies. Um, True. Yeah. Fu Good one. Funnily, funnily, uh, like I'm, we've always been at this point. Like you know, there's a benchmark. Let's look at it, but let's not get obsessed about it because. That might be good for that company, but a complete waste of time for us to focus on that. So, but back to your question, um, you have to set the goals in a way that drive behavior. If you don't do that, if you're not conscious about your goals, then this is the first misstep on what you will achieve and whether you will foster um, great execution. The other thing about, let's say, instruments like huddles, team meetings, and so on, um, they can be very useful because um, they uh, they basically create transparency. I think this is a this is a critical element um, that the team understands that everyone is like chipping in, that there's no one in hiding, no one is kind of like slugging around. So that's a that's a good instrument, I think, to to at least make it transparent. But 
the more critical element about that is, is keeping people accountable. So mm -hmm. to give you an example, mm -hmm. we, had, we had this uh, a while ago. So um, a few AEs, uh, you know, started the month and then they basically had a very low forecast, literally zero and a very high best case. And we're like, okay, look, a zero at the beginning of the month as a forecast is actually not really something we're keen on or we, or we really can accept. So we went back to the team and dictated a very, very clear uh, uh, roadmap of actions they have to do because we felt like, okay, apparently they need to support. If they don't see how they're going to bring in the revenue, we need to you know, help them. And then their feedback was, hang on, like, we're not, we're not some rookies that just came from university. Like, why are you, why are you micromanaging us? And we're like, hmm, interesting feedback. Like, where did we, where did we like took the wrong exit? Because that was not our intent. You know, like we, we don't like micromanagement. And then we realized, okay, look, what we actually observed is a lack of accountability. Because if you put down a zero in your forecast, then it means you're not accountable for your number. Okay. Mm -hmm. And if you have the feeling that you're not accountable for your number of your leadership, then obviously they have to react. So we brought that back together and we said, hey, look, thank you for the feedback. Let us share what we like saw and let's agree on how we're going to uh, sort that out. We saw a couple of zeros in the forecast. So we felt that you need direction. If you want to decide like how you want to now go on, then we also need a better assessment on what's going to happen with your forecast because we are 100% certain that you will not deliver a zero because looking at the pipeline, looking at our historics, looking at the deals where they are at the moment, the zero is a clear sandbagging. So you're actually not being accountable for achieving your quota with stating that. So, and I think this is a very, very important element that many people, especially in more modern organizations don't do well, where, you know, uh, employee well-being, holacracy, all these type of new work elements come to fruition, which in general are not bad, but I'm, I'm very convinced they really only work if everyone has a deep sense of ownership and a high degree of accountability. So, and which tools you then use, whether it's huddles or something like that else, it's up to you, it's up to your company culture, it's up what you, what you feel like works. Uh, and also the size of the organization. I think if we would do a, a daily huddle with uh, now 140 people in my team, uh, that would probably cause more distraction than it actually would benefit because by the time everyone stated <laughs> what they're going to do, uh, three hours have passed and then half the day is gone. Uh, but you could decentralize it and make it in some teams, maybe in others, maybe in others not. Basically, uh, you know, bring it back to situational demand, to situational leadership. Amazing advice. Um, and it's exactly what we also talked about a lot in the leadership team um, at Unique about this topic, accountability and responsibility, the differences and um, how important it is. Now, I wonder, what are you, how can you, you know, how can you change that now? How can you make that people feel more accountable for that? It's just about, it's just talking. Is it, um, how do you do that? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a, it, it starts much earlier because if you hire a person who has no sense of accountability, you know, then there's a reason behind that. 
And probably the reason behind that is that the person is not really bought into the task at hand, into the company that the person is working for, into the whole thing that is happening there. So um, when you hire your salespeople, um, you need to understand what is driving their motivation. And is this motivation aligned with what you as a company want to achieve? If there's a high degree of alignment, then I think the question around um, ownership and accountability will actually not be such a big one because most people will be motivated to do what's necessary because it's aligning with their motivation. If there's gaps, which is totally normal because nothing is perfect and you know this can also evolve over time, then there will be definitely gaps. There will be definitely challenges in that sense. So coming back to that point, it's holding people accountable. So one, obviously explaining the concept, explaining what it means, explaining how it's lived, but then holding them accountable in a sense that basically when they don't deliver against it, they have to answer for it. Not in a, in a meaning that you kind of like put them then in front of everybody and then kind of like shout at them or something silly. No, obviously like in that, uh, in, a, in a constructive environment. And then second thing, which is the most important part, you as a leader, you have to live up to that as well. It's not your people who are accountable. It's you who are accountable and your people who are accountable and have that ownership. Because if you are just talking about it and not living up to that, if you're not walking the talk, um, as the Americans say, um, then you will not inspire your people. Yeah, definitely. Now, you stated that a lot comes down to the goal, what motivates people, what's their, what's, uh, what's their goals or their motives. Um, how are there any like are there goals you consider or you consider in your team when you hire people are you asking specific questions to what mm -hmm. motivates them and are there certain answers you would say hey that's not that doesn't suit our culture or that's like <laughs> doesn't that doesn't fit with the accountability kind of uh mm -hmm. with the yeah with the whole topic what do you think about that yeah, I mean, it's, uh, yeah, I, I had a lot of very, very um, interesting conversations um, around that topic. So um, typically in every interview, I ask people what motivates them. And what I often hear, because that's the typical thing, because it's a very, very like regular interview question. And then people come up with stuff like, I want to make the customer happy. I'm like, hmm. You know, that's noble, but don't get me wrong. I don't believe you. Like no one like gets up to make the customer happy. Okay. So it could be, you know, that this is very closely aligned to your motivation that making customers happy, you know, serves that purpose. But that means if you couldn't make a customer happy, you would not get out of your bed. Is that what you're saying? And then people start to think, yeah, no, like, sure, I would get out of bed. So, but why? Okay. And the uh, even more revealing element is that only a fraction of the people that I've interviewed really have an answer to that because they never asked the question to themselves. So what is really driving your behavior? Why do you want to do what you want to do or what you're claiming you want to do? Is it because of money? Is it because of, I don't know, learning? Is it because of something else? What is it? Because down to the bone of it, the motives, there's a couple of motives. There's, there's not like hundreds of motives why you would do something, okay? And 
Um, that's a very interesting thing. And for me, uh, indicator then is not that I don't hire people who never thought about that and therefore don't have a great answer. But the more they have thought about it, the closer they are to their true motives. And if everything else fits, the more confident I am that they will take ownership. And if I see that they, you know, like everything is good, but they really didn't get to the bone because they're just in their early 20s, you know, and they haven't figured out what they really want and why they really want it, uh, which is totally normal. Um, then I basically give them that advice to really think about that and um, see how this aligns with what they're doing, because you will relatively quickly sense if, you know, there's a misalignment with that and they believe they want to do A, but they're really motivated for B, and then they will not be good at A. I love it. I can clearly see why you, Oliver, you were a successful sales person and now are a successful sales leader because you that's <laughs> one key that's one key thing you know not be happy with just a answer with a third level answer just go down one more uh, it's important in sales but also uh, yeah with, with just the example that you had because i'm also i'm i also had these thoughts in terms of motivation what is actually a first level motivation because yeah you you mentioned money right but money very often some people want to buy freedom with money at some point that what that's one that's one of my goals actually i want when i'm 40 i you know i want to do whatever i like at that time maybe i go for two years to australia with my girlfriend and maybe kids and so on um or i, I just want to do whatever i want so freedom could be potentially a, a first level motivation for me other people want to have right. money because they need to impress some other, maybe, you know, their parents were like, yeah, you're never going to make it. And now they think like, now I'm going to show you I make it and, and something like this, right? Imposter so syndrome, yes. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, there's there's definitely the thing. And, um, you know, like with what you've mentioned, it's also um, there can be these first level motivation drivers that are healthy and then the ones that are unhealthy. So, for example, you picked one that I consider really unhealthy if you have to compare yourself um, to others, if you have to prove others, you know, that you're successful and, you know, let's be fair. Like, it's not that, um, when you're a competitive salesperson that you never compare yourself against others, but the question is to what degree. So, and if that degree becomes, um, to a level of uh, that, it, that it's close to anxiety, that it's close to, you know, like really negative emotions, then, you know, this will burn you out. And, um, that that's also a reason why I think it's really important to understand your motives. Um, is to understand whether your motives are healthy, you know, because if you realize those motives are really not healthy, you should try to understand why you have those motives and whether you can adapt. Uh, because many, many, like many of those things are kind of like connected to things that are way back in our childhood and, you know, what happened back when you couldn't even have a consciousness and so on and all of these things. And I mean, to what you said, I have a very similar um, perspective, like what drives me. Um, it's not money per se. I mean, uh, it's more that money is the proxy for freedom in our society. So you have two ways how you can go towards freedom. Either you disconnect and kind of like neglect every materialism. Uh, you, you know, you become a radical minimalist or you go into the woods and live there. But that would conflict with other goals that you might have in life. For example, I have a couple of kids and um, you know, I, I want to have kids in a family, so I can't take them now to the woods and live <laughs> down with them in, and, 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 and feed them bugs and so on. I think that would be really tricky. At least I don't have the skill. Um, 
So therefore, I've chosen the other path where, you know, like um, get to a point uh, where you have certain financial capabilities and uh, with that have options. You're not you're not dependent on everything anymore. You can you can choose to say no. You can choose to say, I don't want to do that. You know, I don't need to do that. And I think that's a very liberating uh, spot where also at some point in time I want to be. Yes, I agree. Uh, very nice. So back to the strategy execution quickly, something uh, that, yeah. that I'm also interested in. So when you form, did you have some recent strategy, like strategic changes that you've done in the last like three, four, three years at Personia? Was there a time where you had a very strong shift of strategy to something very different? Um, probably the one thing that would fit the most into that description was um, we we released the payroll product into the market. Uh, and then uh, we saw that this is a very different beast than the product we've built so far. Um, and then decided to, um, instead of like offering an own solution for now, um, shift into a model with a partnership with payroll providers. So, and uh, for example, in Germany, we're partnering with Datev, um, which is a strategic partner for us and we're one of uh, one for them. So that's, you know, like we try to um, improve the, the, the payroll experience uh, or the, the experience in the payroll market through that partnership. So that, that was probably something that would go into that. But if I like, like, like if you would ask the question, have we pivoted significantly? No. Yeah, smaller strategic changes uh, in the sales team that you would say, hey, uh, you had to like, yeah, that you needed to do. So we're, we're discussing at the moment, or what means we're actually implementing one. So when I came on board, um, I was tasked to like evolve an outbound motion. So, you know, when you when you compare European and US companies, typically it's the way that European companies are quite good at marketing and having inbound. US companies are quite good at not having marketing, but then having a lot of outbound SDR business coming in. And Personia was similar, like uh, mostly inbound driven. And I had uh, the pleasure to build out this outbound function. So we had a quite big distinction between inbound and outbound. And I think for, for the period and the, the time we had it, it was really, really good. However, we've now arrived at a level of maturity where this distinction doesn't work anymore for us. And we are thinking more of a unified funnel because outbound and inbound are actually just a representation of where is the lead in the funnel. So an outbound lead is probably more top of funnel. An inbound lead is probably more bottom of funnel. So why not really yeah. look at it as it is instead of kind of like splitting the funnel into two artificial perspectives from a uh, vendor perspective, why not move more towards a customer perspective and understand, okay, where are you actually right now? What do you need to get to the next stage? And how can I help as a company and who needs to do it? So, and I think that's probably the most significant change we're doing oh, that's interesting. from an operating model. Yes. Yeah. How does that change the operation? So I can tell you in completeness how it changes everything because we, we, we are, we're just in the process of doing it. Um, but we're starting like on the marketing side to incorporate that because if they're not aligned, then if sales like switches to that, 
it's probably not going to work. So from the marketing part, it needs to flow down and then sales is starting to shift towards that. So and uh, like with everything, it starts to not talk anymore about the old structure, to not think in the old structure and then to think about, okay, what do you actually need to do to implement that? And we just this week had a workshop around this question. What do we need to do as next step to implement these things? And uh, one of the element is, for example, to de define um, the clear responsibilities along the funnel and then who is responsible for it. So, for example, you have an outbound lead at this stage or sorry, <laughs> I have fallen into the trap. You have a lead that is more top of the funnel uh, mm -hmm. and then you need to understand, OK, again, like, OK, this lead is there. They need X, Y, that who is doing it and how 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 is how has it been done? Is it done by marketing in an automated way? Is it done by a salesperson in a manual way? Is it a collaboration? Is it a mix? Maybe do you need more people? Do you need, I don't know, solution engineering at this point already? So there might be different different answers to that. So uh, um, you were talking about the, um, the the commit and best case model, um, Oliver. Mm -hmm. I think that's one very common model that uh, I guess probably from the US uh, coming more and more to Europe. Um, what do you think about that? Is that something, is that is it, is it actually working well because of the topic we discussed before in regards to accountability that people say, hey, I'm going to do this and, and then are accountable for reaching that number. Is it why that model is working so well? Interesting question. I haven't, um, to be fair, I haven't thought too much about it because that's how I was raised, if I want to say it like that. Uh, before I joined mm -hmm. Personia, I was working always for uh, US uh, software vendors. So I never learned oh. actually something different. Um, and for me, it was really clear that you have to deliver a forecast. So um, I've experienced, however, different, let's say, interpretations of the model. So some companies work with the worst case. The worst case, then in that sense, is okay, this is like what guaranteed will come in. Then you have a forecast, uh, which is this will by 90, 95% will be my result. And then you mm -hmm. have a best case, this is your 75% estimate. And um, the alternative would be that you cut the forecast out and then you have a commit and your commit is probably somewhere between your worst case and your forecast. And then you have a, best case or upside, how you want to call it. But then that's also then again in the, I don't know, 75% uh, probability range. And regardless of how you, um, how you work in that sense, a very, very critical element is really that every AE like submits a number. And mm -hmm. it's then up to you how hard you drive accountability for that number. So mm -hmm. what is your what is your tolerable range? Because I think on an AE level that this fluctuates uh, is um, something that you know will happen. You can't avoid it. Um, obviously, there's instruments, and there we're coming back to execution management. Um, let, let's take for example Medic. So I think most uh, most have heard about Medic. I'm not going to go too mm -hmm. much into detail about it, but Medic is a qualification framework. What does qualification give you? Qualification gives you data. What do you do with data? The more data you have, the more profound you can build a forecast. And um, I do a training um, every month with our new joiners, where basically I ask them, hey, can you tell me 
what a forecast is. And then I take the example of the weather forecast. And if you have, uh, let's say, a 60% probability of rain, then I ask, hey, can you tell me what that actually means? And then people say, yeah, there's a six out of 10 chance that it rains. I'm like, yeah, that's the kind of like message that you should should get. But like, what what is, how is it constructed? Like, do we, how do we get to the 60%? And actually not many people really know it. Um, the way how it's done is we have weather recordings. So over the last couple hundred years, the humankind is being recording weather conditions in a million places around this planet. And mm -hmm. what, what they're basically doing is they're checking the weather records and saying, hey, in like how many cases did we have with the same weather conditions like today? The temperature, the amount of sun, the humidity, the air pressure, the wind, all these variables. And then they look, did it rain or didn't it rain? And what it basically says, in all of the recordings which we have with the identical weather conditions, in six out of 10 days, it did rain. And in four out of 10 days, it didn't rain. Mm -hmm. And once you understand that, you understand what actually data in a forecast means. It doesn't mean it's magic and it gives you some, I don't know, <laughs> uh, spiritual power to predict the future. No, it simply, um, how to say, reduces the margin for error because you can compare it to historics. Yeah. So the more data you have, the more you understand, okay, are there risk factors? Are there upside factors? And the better you can assess risk and upside factors, you better can determine whether a deal will come. And even a 100% commit has always a risk of failing because, I don't know, take it two years <laughs> ago when Corona hit, I think a few people missed their forecast, <laughs> including myself. I'm sure. I'm sure that's an amazing way to see this. I've never seen it from this perspective, Oliver. And I think that's the greatest, a great way to uh, end this podcast because 30 minutes are over extremely quickly. And uh, thank you so much uh, for joining. That was incredibly valuable for me. Yeah. And thank you, Patrick, for, for having me. Um, looking forward to our next chat. Uh, we just talked about one topic. So maybe the next time we pick up the second one. Yeah, that's the issue. So when the first topic is already too interesting, then uh, we don't get to the second. <laughs> we we certainly picked it up the next time. Definitely. Perfect. Thanks, Patrick. Thank you.